Welcome to the Vulva Diaries with host Dr. Amanda Selk, bringing you the 101 on vulvovaginal health. So today we're going to talk to Dr. Mark Uden, who is an OBGYN at St. Michael Hospital in Toronto, and he has extra training in reproductive infectious diseases. Hi, Dr. Uden. Good morning. Thank you for having me. So today we're going to talk about genital herpes. So first question, is genital herpes common? I think that's a great way to start because uh, this is one of the questions that my patients ask me a lot. And I do see a lot of people in my gynecology practice with sexually transmitted infections and particularly herpes. I think it's probably the most common chronic STI that I see. And so, you know, the problem with that question is we don't exactly know how common it truly is because herpes itself is not a reportable disease like some other sexually transmitted infections. So we don't have exact data on how common it is in Canada. But some things we do know are, and we may talk a little bit more about this later, but if you do a blood test for the different viruses that, are pre- that can be present with genital herpes, anywhere from 20 up to 70 or 80% of people can be positive for these blood tests. So I think what we do know is there's a lot of people out there that have been exposed to this infection, even if they don't know they have it. Yeah, I remember seeing studies that say something like most of the people who have it don't actually know they have it when you do those blood tests. That's absolutely true. You know, we say that the people who are diagnosed are actually the tip of the iceberg. That's a common uh, phrase that's used in this area, meaning that, you know, there's a group of people out there who know they have it, but then there's a lot of other people that actually don't have any signs or symptoms and would be surprised to find out that their blood test was positive. Can you talk about what causes herpes? Sure. So the the herpes viruses that cause genital herpes, there's two different types. So there's herpes virus type 1 and type 2. We call um, these viruses HSV for herpes simplex virus, so HSV1 and HSV2. And classic thinking used to be that HSV1 caused oral herpes, which you know are like cold sores, and HSV2 caused genital herpes. And we know now that both of those, HSV1 and 2, can actually cause oral or genital herpes. It is still true that more genital herpes is caused by type 2. And and as I was saying to you before, if you did a blood test on everyone in the population, we know from many, many studies actually quite consistently that about 20% of people would be positive for HSV2. So one in five people are positive for the subtype of this virus that is classically associated with genital herpes. And that's why I say it's actually probably quite common. At least one in five people have that. And how does herpes usually present? You know, this is the other tricky thing about herpes. Um, First of all, it's important to know that a lot of people who are exposed to this virus don't get any signs or symptoms at all, as we just said. So a person may become infected and not actually know they have the infection and never, ever get any outbreaks whatsoever. But then there are people who do get what we call outbreaks from the infection. And, you know, in terms of outbreaks in the genital region for men or women, there's different signs and symptoms. The most common things, though, are what we would call lesions in the genital tract. So that can either be outside or inside. And sometimes these are blisters. Sometimes these are little ulcers. And these are usually painful. And they usually go, by, go away by themselves, even if the person does nothing and doesn't treat them. 
the first time a person ever gets exposed to this infection, if they are going to get symptoms, we call that the primary outbreak. And that one's usually a little more dramatic. So more of these lesions, more discomfort from them. Sometimes they even get a fever and don't feel well. And then if people are going to get what we call recurrent outbreaks, which means they get them you know, over and over again, those recurrences are usually less dramatic than the first time they ever have symptoms. But it is really important to remember that there's a lot of people out there who may get no outbreaks whatsoever or get very infrequent outbreaks. So there's no real rules with this virus. Some people have nothing, some people have periodic symptoms, and some people have symptoms very often. Yeah, and I've seen people who haven't had any sexual activity for many, many, many years, and all of a sudden they have a herpes outbreak. That's right. It doesn't have to be tied to recent sexual activity because it is a virus that gets into someone's system and can be dormant for a long time. And then for some reason, and we don't always know why, it can become active, you know, years even after their first exposure. Sometimes that relates to changes in immune function. Sometimes it's due to stress. A lot of my patients talk about the fact that they think that stress makes them have more frequent outbreaks. Sometimes it's even environmental things like uh, hot weather or changes in climate that um, can cause outbreaks. Sounds like something we should always be thinking about. Absolutely. As providers, if people come in to see you with symptoms of discomfort or any kind of lesions in the genital tract, it's always good to have this as, as a possible diagnosis in your mind. And so then how would you test for it? I mean, there's a couple of ways to test for it that are, I think, the most common ways. So one is a blood test that we've talked about, and I, I can tell you a little more about that. And the other is to do a swab of the actual lesion. So that's actually the best way. And we still think that's the what we would call the gold standard of diagnosis. So if somebody walks into your office with a blister or with an ulcer, you can actually do a culture swab of that lesion and send that to the lab. And I think that's the best way to diagnose it because you've done a swab of an actual lesion. And if that comes back positive, then you can say, hey, we know that lesion was from herpes. The blood test can be useful, but it's important to remember, and I try to tell my patients this, that having a blood test, all it does is tell you that the person has been exposed to this virus. So, you know, if I had a blood test and my blood test was positive, that doesn't necessarily tell you that the symptoms the person is getting are coming from herpes because we know a lot of people with positive blood tests won't have symptoms. So the blood test is good to tell you if the person's ever been exposed or if they have never been exposed. It doesn't always tell you that the symptoms they're getting are coming from herpes. So I always tell my patients the very best way to be diagnosed and to prove that your symptoms are coming from herpes is to have a swab of, of the lesion in the genital tract when it's there. And if the swab comes back negative, does that mean for sure they don't have herpes or it can still be herpes? Yeah, it actually doesn't necessarily mean that because just like most tests, the swabs are not perfect. So it's always possible if you swab somebody when maybe they're near the end of their outbreak, there's not a whole lot of virus there that the swab won't pick up the virus. It's also possible if they have a blister, if you don't break the blister and swab the underlying base of the blister, then you might miss the virus. So the swabs are great if they come back positive. If they come back negative, you can't say for sure that the person does not have herpes. I don't know if you've heard this. I had a dermatologist teach me that if you wet the swab, like in the culture media, it tends to have more pickup than if it's dry. I have heard this. I must confess to you, I'm not sure how data-driven that is. I don't know for sure if we really know that that's definitely true. It sort of makes logical sense to me because maybe you're going to have a better pickup rate if the swab is moist. 
Um, so I certainly don't think there's anything wrong with that. I'm not sure that it's truly necessary. Sounds good. So then how do you treat herpes? So that I think is the other real big important point, And I'm glad we're talking about that because um, there's a lot of guidelines out there, including the Canadian STI guidelines that talk about treatment. But what I try to tell my patients and if I'm teaching people about herpes is just remember that guidelines for treatment are simply guidelines. And so we know there's options for treatment. And I think what I try to do is explore with each individual person what their goals are and uh, what they're trying to accomplish with treatment. So, you know, the way that we treat herpes is with antiviral medications. And right now there's three available on the market. And there's a couple of ways to use these medications, a couple of strategies. So one strategy is what we would call episodic therapy. And that means that the person just takes the medications when they get an outbreak. And so usually you can use these medications for between three and five days at a time. And what that will do is it will decrease the severity of that outbreak. So it usually makes it go away faster and makes it not as bad, not as painful. And some people really like that strategy because they just take pills for a few days every time they get an outbreak. This is especially useful for people who do not get frequent outbreaks. The other option is what we call daily therapy or suppressive therapy. And this means that you take a pill once a day, every day. And this is not driven by whether you have symptoms on that day. So you just take it regularly every single day. And the advantage of that strategy is that it will suppress the virus. It makes the virus much less active. And so people who take daily therapy very often get no outbreaks at all. So this is a good strategy for the person who gets more outbreaks and really wants to decrease those outbreaks. But I do think it's important to remember that different people will have different goals for therapy. And I've had some individuals who get an outbreak every single month, but they still want to take only episodic therapy because they would rather not take a pill every day and they don't mind taking a pill for three days each month. I have other people who do not get outbreaks very often, but still prefer to take daily therapy because the outbreaks really bother them and they would rather be in a situation where they get none. So I think that either strategy is good. It depends on the person. And finally, the last thing to think about is people who go on daily therapy, because it decreases the amount of virus they have, it also decreases the likelihood that they're going to pass this virus on to a sexual partner. So some people prefer daily therapy because it makes them feel more secure that they're less likely to pass the virus on to others. So I think that leads importantly to how you counsel patients around herpes infections. Yeah, and I have to tell you, um, I think this is a huge component of looking after individuals with herpes is that counseling piece. And I find that this is an infection that seems to really bother people when you look at different STIs. People really don't like to hear about this diagnosis. And I feel like, unfortunately, there's still a stigma associated with it. So counseling is really important. And so I think there's a few things I try to do. I try to tell people how common this really is in the population so that they don't feel like they're alone. Because a lot of people with this diagnosis don't discuss it with their friends and family. So everybody thinks they're the only person who has this. So I think it's really important to make people understand that there's a lot of people out there with this diagnosis. I think it's important that people understand what we talked about earlier, that not everyone who actually has this infection will have signs and symptoms. So sometimes people pass it on without even knowing they have it. And I think that's important when it comes to people dealing with how they got it and relationships. And I think it's also important to talk about people's goals for therapy and for them to understand that there are a very effective therapies. The other thing I wanted to raise here, this is a good time to talk about it, 
is people should understand that for the vast majority of people with this infection, if they do get symptoms from it, their symptoms will get better over time. And it's very unlikely for somebody to need medication forever. And I think that's another thing that helps people to feel a little bit better, that even if they're in a time period where they're getting frequent outbreaks and this is a really concerning issue for them, most people eventually will get to a point in time where they get very few or even no outbreaks and where their viral shedding, so the amount of virus present in the tissues will be very low and their likelihood of getting outbreaks will be low and their likelihood of passing it on will be low. And I think that's helpful for people to hear because I think it gives them hope that things will actually get better over time. Could you touch on suppression in pregnancy? Absolutely. So in terms of pregnancy, the real biggest issue is that we are concerned as providers and pregnant women are concerned that they don't want to pass this infection on to a baby during birth. And so we know from a lot of good studies that if pregnant women take medications at the end of pregnancy daily, and that would be the same strategy as people who use it for suppression daily when they're not pregnant, that it will decrease the likelihood of the virus being present in the tissues and decrease the likelihood of them getting an outbreak. And so all of the studies have shown, it's been very clear, that if you put women on daily therapy starting at 36 weeks for the last month of pregnancy, their likelihood of viral shedding and their likelihood of outbreaks will go down. Now, none of these studies specifically showed that that decreased the risk of a baby getting the infection. And the reason is because the likelihood of that is so low to begin with that you would need millions of people in a study to prove that. But we believe that if you're decreasing viral shedding and you're decreasing the number of outbreaks, then you are decreasing the chance of transmission to a baby as well. And so my personal feeling in my own practice is anyone with a history of herpes at all, even if it's not recent, is a good candidate for this strategy. And what we do is we put them on daily medication either two or three times a day at the end of the pregnancy, as I said, starting at 36 weeks. And there's really no downside to doing this and only potential benefit. These drugs have actually been used for a very long time and have been proven to be quite safe in pregnancy. Do you have any other take-home points for our listeners? I think You know, just sort of uh, as an ending, I I mentioned this a few minutes ago, I just would like people to have hope, you know, and if you're a provider listening to this, I think it's important for you to be hopeful when you're counseling your patients that this is a very manageable condition, this is a very common condition, and this is a condition that in almost every person you see will get better over time. I think that's good for providers to know, and I think it's really important for people with this infection to know because, as I said, there's unfortunately still a lot of stigma with this infection, and I feel like it's my role in the office to try to give patients the tools they need to deal with this infection or whatever condition they're coming in with. Thank you so much for that great review on genital herpes. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for asking me to speak to you today. And again, that's Dr. Mark Uden, an obstetrician gynecologist at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto, who has a extra training in reproductive infections. 